Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned J. Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, then join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer business and other fields that we find interesting. I'm here in the taproom with my co-host, Maria Cabre. Hello, Maria. Who's our first guest today? Our next guest co-founded Superstition Meadery with his wife, Jennifer, in Prescott, Arizona in 2012. Over the past decade, their meads have won numerous awards. They have opened a second location in downtown Phoenix. They have grown their distribution to over 30 states and they have been celebrated as a small business success story in Arizona. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Jeff Herbert. Thank you very much for uh, joining me today. Actually, uh, morning for you there in Arizona. How are you, man? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me on your show. I am. Uh, actually, it's a, it's a great pleasure, man. It's, uh, I mean, we just hung out uh, a week ago. It's, it had been, boy, I was, I was trying to recall, I think, two, two years, maybe almost three years since I had seen you. But it was always uh, it's always great hanging out and catching up with you, man. Um, first, can you give me a little background before we talk mead? So, you are a Maryland native. Is it true that the real reason you chose Arizona State for college was to be in a place where you could follow your passion for rock climbing? It is. I am impressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's how I met my wife, and uh, yeah, I was uh, totally into climbing. I once upon a time could do a one arm pull up and, was, oh. you know, climbing. I not anymore, but you know, yeah, I, I climbed around the country and, and, um, you know, put up roots and we even put up a route in Mexico and bouldered in Thailand. And so, uh, yeah, that was my life for, for gosh, like probably 15 years. So you graduated from ASU with a degree in anthropology and Southeast Asian studies. You worked as an archeologist in the winters in Arizona and California in the summers, you were a firefighter for the Forest Service, which is an amazing thing. What were those first summers like as a firefighter? Did you find yourself developing a love for, for the profession of, of firefighting? Absolutely. You know, I be, being, you know, coming from the climbing background, I mean, when you go rock climbing, you're hiking with a pack, you're camping out, you're doing stuff in nature, you're pushing your limits, you're, you're building relationships, you're seeing what you're made of. And working as a, as a hotshot and, and then doing a couple of engine seasons after that was, uh, it, it really kind of brought a lot of things together. And it's, I guess, one of the things that it's sort of a theme throughout my life, I, I try really hard to never be a hypocrite in anything. And when it comes to like firefighting, rock climbing, there's nowhere to hide, man. Like you either, no. you're either doing the job, you're pulling it off or you're not. And in, in those worlds, um, you know, it's kind of shark tanky in a way where like, if you're not pulling your weight, uh, it will be known, it will be, be known to you. <laughs> and so it was, uh, it was quite a challenge fitting into that world. I'd never done that before. That was like my real, like 1999, you know, like time to, time to grow up, man. And, uh, and it was awesome. I got to work with some of the coolest people in the world and got to see some crazy things, you know, like I've seen like a lava waterfall in Hawaii on vacation hitting the ocean. But besides that, I mean, watching a mountain blow up yes. when you have to retreat to a safety zone and you can feel the flames that are, I mean, this sounds like I'm making this up. I no. got pictures of this from a disposable camera, but like you're a mile away, you just evacuated. And I'm just thinking of this like Pinal Peak flag was on. And you can feel the heat radiating from a mile away from the flip. Like, and I mean, there's nothing can survive that. You've got to just get out of the way. And then the fire dies down, you re-engage, you go back to work. That is awesome. So you, you met a biologist who lived about 10 minutes from your home in Arizona. What's funny is that you actually met him in Borneo. You guys became friends, and he was into homebrewing. What happened next out of that, that, that meeting? Yeah, so my buddy Mark introduced me to the, just the concept of homebrewing. I was interested in, in craft beer uh, just as, you know, the kind of, like, I would rather drink a, you know, a Four Peaks or, you know, like back then it was like, you know, microbrew or imports or whatever, right? And I always liked the different sort of flavors and was always a bit of a foodie. But, um, yeah, my buddy would uh, – he'd come back and visit his folks 
because he, he lived and, and did different things all over the world. And he'd come back for the holidays. And so one Christmas, we had him over for dinner, and he brought three bottles of homebrew beer, and one had cacao nibs in it. And, you know, I was like, dude, this is awesome. Like, he was he was a really good homebrewer. And I kept talking about that. And I got home from uh, the fire station because, you know, after the, the wildland world, I, I started working for Phoenix Fire and retired after a you know, 20-year career recently, a couple years ago. But anyways, I got home from the fire station uh, on Father's Day, and my wife had a homebrew kit and a refrigerator and a shelf. I still have my pot. I still have my, my beer fridge covered in stickers. I'm sure there's a Wakefield sticker uh, on there. And, <laughs> um, and, and just got totally into it, man. And, and my first meads, I started making mead the first week. Really? Like my wife got me the, like a homebrew kit. It was, you know, like a, just a stout. So, so why, why the jump into mead and not beer? What attracted you more? Well, I was doing beer, right? Like that's how it started. Right, right. And I love Belgian beers. And so, so part of the homebrew kit, you know, usually you'll, you know, you buy a recipe and it was uh, just right. a stout. Right. And so I go to the homebrew store after I made my first recipe. It was still fermenting. And I said, hey, I want to make a Chimay clone and I want to make a mead. And I had had a mead at a Renaissance fair. It's that cliche, like, you, know, you just tried one thing, like a Chaucer's traditional mead or whatever. And I thought, hey, I'm going to do something with maple syrup for Thanksgiving in four months. And when it was ready, like, it was actually really good. And my first beers were not. It took me a little <laughs> while to figure that out. And, uh, and I, I think, so I, so I was inspired by my early success in, in homebrewing mead. So that early success, uh, you know, kind of took you down this route. But did you ever dabble back into the beer or just, I mean, in that early stages or just kind of write that off completely? Oh, no, totally. I made more beer than mead for sure because mead took so long to make. Over the years of having a business, we've learned some really cool techniques and how to shorten that time span dramatically. But in the beginning, I was probably homebrewing twice a month, like making a beer twice a month, about every two weeks. Right. And I'd make a mead like every you know month or two because it was a minimum of four months for me to have a mead that tasted good in the beginning. Right. So just a little background for our listeners. Can you explain what exactly a mead is? Yeah. So mead is – so like wine, when you drink wine, it's defined by fermenting wine grapes. When you make beer – it's defined by fermenting different cereal grains and then, you know, adding hops in, the, in that process. When you have a cider, it's defined by apples contributing the dominant fermentable sugar and flavor, the raw ingredients. And mead is defined by honey. So a traditional mead is honey, water, and yeast. And when you say water, at first you may think, oh, that doesn't sound good. It's water, right? Well, I mean, what's beer made out of, right? Now, it's not like wine or cider necessarily. However, with a traditional mead, we're reversing what nature does. So bees will go out. Now I'm going to teach everyone the birds and the bees again. So bees go out, they grab some <laughs> nectar, they have a honey sack, they're transporting it back to the hive. There are enzymes in that honey sack that start to change the nectar from the flower into what will eventually become honey. They return to the hive, they regurgitate the nectar into you know the honeycombs that we've all seen in a beehive, and then bees know they have to flap their wings and dry out the honey so that the moisture content gets below 18% water, wow. or it will ferment in the hive, and they would be making meat, and they would just be drunk and not really getting their work done, and bees are hard workers. So then they seal that up with wax, and that, that becomes a food source for the bees. So we reverse that process by adding the moisture back in. And so in a traditional mead, we're adding water back in. And if you are thinking about a homebrew-sized batch and you had a five-gallon bucket or carboy or fermenter, every one pound of honey in every five gallons of honey and water will equal 1% ABV if you ferment it dry. And so a gallon of honey is 12 pounds. And so you have a gallon of honey, you have four gallons of water, you'd have a 12% dry mead. Wow. However, we will also, when we make sizers or piments, so there's all these weird words we can get into. So a sizer <laughs> is an apple mead. So we'll, instead of water, we'll do the same thing, right? Of course, we're going to measure the sugar content that the apple juice is providing, but then we're going to add honey in, ferment that, and we'll have a sizer. And a piment is pear? Wine grapes. It's wine. The piment is Any wine. grapes, really. But, but, yeah, we'll use, like, Cabernet, Pinot Noir, Grenache. And when you're fermenting something uh, with fruit, if you're going to have that fruit flavor, the characteristics, the aroma, if you want that in the end, you need to start with a whole lot of that in the beginning if you're going to ferment it all. 
So when we do the sizers and the piments, we're not doing any water additions whatsoever. Now, when we do things like berries, a lot of times we'll add in berries in the end of fermentation, so we retain a lot of the characteristics that we're going for. And in having made over 400 different recipes in 10 years, there's just so many techniques that we use. depends on what our goals are. That's amazing. So when along the lines after the homebrew and everything, did you crack the idea of opening a meadery yourself? It's a good question. Um, you know, this is going back to like 2007, 2008 timeframe, right? Like the real estate market was booming and I had a lot of friends that were becoming real estate agents. I actually almost signed up to take the test. My wife and I had built a house a few years before. We didn't GC it, but we were super involved and and we've both been really good at project management for different reasons in, in, in our lives. And I was thinking about all of those different aspects of, you know, well, what would be like a cool business? Because I think that the dream of an entrepreneur is to, you know, ultimately find some level of financial freedom where you can sort of live life on your own terms. That's why we all get into this game. And, you know, for me, plan A was, hey, do the fire career, maybe retire from Phoenix and become a chief in a small town like Chief Brody and Jaws, you know, body washed up on the beach, chief. Like, I always thought that would be cool. Maybe have two pensions one day, you know, right. but but along the lines, I kept asking that question, what would make sense for me as a business? And, you know, I think every single home brewer, like, comes up with a name for a brewery one day. And what would my logo look like? And, you know, I was in that group for sure. And I kept asking myself that question. And as, you know, you get into home brewing, you travel and you start asking questions of brewers. Like, you'll, like I remember being in Western Maryland. So I can't even, I was back home visiting my folks. And we, of course, went to a brew pub. And I noticed that the guys from the back came out and I'm like, Hey, you guys brewers here. And we just started asking questions. I started taking notes and then I started getting intentional with it. And I, I did some research to try and find out, are there any classes I can take to learn how to do this as a business? And I wound up going to the Siebel Institute in Chicago, which if your listeners don't know, Siebel is one of the best places on earth to become a master brewer. And they happen to have this class called how to start a brewery. I took the second one they ever put on and I'm in this class of 40 people and some folks had already opened breweries. Like it was that good of a, of a course and I didn't know anything. And the first question that Ray Daniels asked, who's like this famous author in the beer where I didn't know any of these folks, Randy Mosher was teaching stuff, oh guys gosh. that had breweries in Chicago. They go, who here is an award-winning home brewer? And 39 people raised their hand, everyone but me. And I look at the guy next to me and I go, they have awards for this shit. And because I, no one was that I wasn't friends with people doing it. Anyways, I, this is a ridiculous statement if you've been to business school, but I felt like I got an MBA in three days. I learned how to write a business plan from people that just did it. I learned about all the options of bringing in investors or getting loans and growing on your own and how does it work. They brought in someone from the TTV to teach us about compliance and the rules. They brought in Randy Mosher, a famous graphic designer in the beer world, to teach about label design and whatnot. And so the whole time you're taking notes, you're asking questions, and then you go out after the class and you wind up learning even more than in the class by talking to people that are in the class with you and having a beer with some of the instructors. And so I got home and wrote a business plan. And it kind of could have went in either direction, right? Because a lot of what I learned in this how to have a brewery class really translated into how to have a meadery. And to this day, by the way, for your listeners, no one's ever written a book on how to have a meadery, or how to make mead professionally. You're next. That's you. You're writing a book next. I'm telling you. <laughs> so how did, how did you finance the opening of Superstition? $10,000 on a credit card. Really? In 2012. We were the smallest winery in the state of Arizona. We made 300 gallons of mead and cider our first year, but we were really, really creative. And when you start a business and you don't have resources, there's a lot of ways to start a business. You have to completely maximize every skill set you have. And for us, it was project management. I had a like just a handful of like photography skills to learn how to make my first labels, which totally pale in comparison to what we do now. Um, but I knew how to make, I knew, I knew how to homebrew. And so we started a business that was really extreme homebrew. And I think that my wife and I, and, and, and a lot like people like you and, and my friends in the business, we know that business is about relationships in many levels right. and we're good at, and we enjoy having friends in this industry. It's why we're talking right now. 
And we made friends with a couple that owned a winery and a guest ranch that was surrounded by the National Forest, about a half hour west of town. And before we left our first meeting, I, of course, brought some homebrew to share. We're, we're like pulling, not pulling nails. We pull nails on barrels now, but we were using wine thieves to take samples out of barrels. These guys were just the consummate hosts. And before we left, they said, you guys should have your meadery here. And so that's funny you say that because I was just about to start looking for like a really small commercial space to either do like a nano brewery that I knew I could just, again, put 10 grand on a credit card get a couple of uh, pieces of equipment and get going. I had already done research on all the licensing aspects. What we wound up doing was starting the first alternating proprietorship in Arizona. And that's where one separate licensed producer of alcohol. So you can do this in beer. I believe in distilling definitely in wine. Um, and, and most States have laws that just mirror the federal way that you can go ahead and do this. So I actually had 20 square feet. That was my first production facility space that we lease from these guys and of course we had you know everything was legal we had a lease agreement the government has to see that and approve it but in practice i actually paid my rent by running a chainsaw on the ranch um you know helping these guys make wine we became like adopted kids of of this couple and we ran that program for a couple of years until it was time to move on to prescott and, and get a bigger space in our own tasting room that's amazing I mean, at the same time, you kept your job at the Phoenix Fire Department, too, right? And you've kept it up until a few years ago, actually, right? No one would believe the hours that my wife and I put in. So as a firefighter, you average 56 hours a week. And there's nights where you get to sleep and you feel like a winner the next day. But when you're up all night, you're just a zombie and you never really recover. Then you're back at it a couple days later. So I'd work 24 on, 48 off. I was commuting 100 miles door to door each time I would do that. And trying to maintain all of those, hey, we got little kids. We've got a family life to maintain and balance. You got to stay in shape, right, for the job anyways. And just to stay sane when you're doing all this. But, yeah, the hours that we put in. Uh, and, and continue to work really hard. But I mean, when you're working full time and you're an entrepreneur and you've got to start a business and do everything, you have to work. It's just ridiculous. And and I think one of the real important things, if anyone's listening and they're, and they're involved in this or they're thinking about starting it, is learning how to recognize the signs of burnout, which is something you learn as an EMT, a medic, a firefighter. And so you're constantly towing that line. It's like a tightrope and you have to use skills and you develop skills to maintain that so you stay sane and focused and, and you know effective at what you're doing yeah i i agree with that i think you know especially going through the pandemic and everything it, there's definitely been a load probably across the industry of figuring out what to do what to do next how to change the business how to keep the business going and also at the same time keep yourself from burning out so i, I definitely think that is uh, a very valid point how has your production grown over the years? How many barrels are you making now versus what you did in the beginning? I think we had talked before. I think you guys don't measure in barrels, really. It's it's in gallons, right? Yeah. So, you know, as a brewer, you guys measure in barrels because you're going to pay tax on every 31 gallons, this interesting right. archaic unit. And if anyone listening doesn't know, like when you went to a kager in high school, that's a half barrel. That's 15 and a half gallons. But I mean, you would never know this stuff. And all of our kegs that we use, even as a winery, like we'll speak in, in liters, we'll speak in gallons. But really, you're talking about increments of a barrel. So for us, we, we measure everything in gallons because that's how we pay our excise taxes to the state and the federal government. So we did 85,000 gallons last year. So I believe that's around 2,700 barrels. Yep. Yep. That's awesome. And in that 20 square feet that you started out with, how many gallons did you brew that first year? 300. Really? That's amazing. <laughs> that is a massive growth chart, dude. That is unbelievable. So your distribution now covers 30 states through major chains like Total Wine, Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, and Costco. How did you build such an impressive distribution network for a product that most Americans are, are not familiar with? Yeah, I would say it's a, it's an unlikely story. And we, like, my very first account was called Park Plaza Liquor and Deli in, in Prescott here, and we're still friends with those guys. And I literally took my kid's red wagon out of the trunk of my Dodge Challenger with 
I, a keg, like I had a pony, a quarter barrel, right? And, you know, my CO2 bottle and a, and a picnic tap for my carbonated product. And I had some bottles of mead and I wheeled in the wagon and I had set up my tasting event. And it was like that, man, in the beginning, just one account at a time. And I remember if I sold four cases of mead in a week, I was like, yeah, it's a thousand dollars, man. I, this is awesome. We're going out to sushi. We're nice. killing it. And, and, and so that was the first couple of years, but in, by the end of year one, I had, I had met um, a friend of mine, his name's Jim Wiskirchen, and he really helped us grow our distribution. Jim had set up um, a really cool tour for, he, he worked at Whole Foods for a while and he won their national award for like uh, setting up, uh, I don't know if everyone knows this, but in Arizona, we have this emerging wine scene and, uh, Maynard from Tool, uh, the rock band, has a winery and, and vineyards here. And he was working with another Arizona winemaker, and they did this tour of the country. And so so Jim set that up. And, and along that path, he had met all of these winery owners that could self-distribute. And for anyone listening, that means that, you know, in, in most states, there are these rules that say if you're small enough, you can sell your own product right to a consumer out of your tap room if you have one, or right to a store or a restaurant. And so Jim set up this business where he was acting as a salesman for about 12 different Arizona wineries. And in the wine world, typically you're going to make wine in the fall. And then right before winemaking season, you're going to release last year's wines. Like, so it's time to sell it all. Right. And so a lot of times they would sell through their stock and they, and Jim wouldn't really have anything to do for a while. And the cycle of making meat and cider is different than that. And while we're using, of course, agricultural products, and there's all these interesting variations that happen from that, you get to make meat and cider year round. So we quickly became his biggest account. And until we hit 20,000 gallons of production in Arizona in 2017, Jim was our primary salesperson. And he had relationships with Whole Foods because he worked there. And then he is just, he's a lead singer in a rock and roll band, literally, Mm -hmm. and he's a singer songwriter. And so if you have a salesperson that uh, is comfortable getting on stage with a guitar and a microphone, they're going to be able to sell your product. Yeah. And so Jim was just awesome. And he wound up growing along with some other reps. We added our accounts in Arizona to include a bunch of these chain accounts you just mentioned and to get to about 200 accounts. And then we started taking the lessons we learned in Arizona and applying them around the country. Excellent, man. Excellent. <laughs> I think another key point for people to understand is, Obviously, your product costs more, but like when people think honey, they just think, you know, it's always been around. But like when you use it on a production scale, the cost of that product is so much more than what we pay for grain. I mean, honey is not like mass produced. I mean, it's not grown in thousands of acres. I mean, you are reliant on Mother's Nature's insects that fly to different plants, bring it home, create this thing. You cannot synthetically make this stuff though i mean there are you know people that do that i mean in different countries and whatnot but honey is a very very expensive product and how does that impact your business i mean i know through we've gone through the changes with global climate change and all this stuff and they say the you know the dying off of bees have you seen a price increase over the last couple of years with honey yes honey has gone up in price and there's, there's a lot of side stories on that. Some of that is due to uh, international trade agreements and American producers not wanting to compete with international producers. And you just referenced uh, artificial honey, and that is a thing. And you can kind of tell. Sometimes it's hard to. Um, but I've actually been to a conference where you know, they were demonstrating how to tell the difference. And, um, and people uh, in China, for example, will um, take rice and they'll yes. be able to make a rice syrup and they'll – in, in a skillful way, make it look and taste like honey. So that is a thing. And in order to prevent that from becoming part of your supply chain, you have to have really good relationships with your suppliers. And we do now, all of the honey that we use in our bottles comes from Arizona and we use international honey, but it's fantastic in our cans because it does cost less. So yeah, over time, the price of honey has gone up, even though our economy of scale has improved, but you just mentioned how expensive it is. Think about when you go to the grocery store, what would you pay for like one pound of honey in a honey bear? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, 
I think at least uh, 12, 13 bucks. John, John likes quality honey. I don't buy less than well, first off. First off, uh, he likes I, lo- quality I, I honey. love honey. That's why you and me get along. I mean, I've just never really <laughs> dove into Other making than Jeff mead, is even really cool. I, I mean, Jeff's amazing, but I, I have always been a purveyor a very a honey snob high quality honey and for a lot of people that don't listen i mean yes there is more than just what you go buy at Publix right. or your local i mean there are so many varieties of honey that come from so many different varieties of flowers and plants and trees that it, it's an endless but, but taste, what tasting is, cycle i mean what amazing, jeff right. is referring to right. is maybe like 12 bucks right but if you go buy bucks. if you go buy a, a jar of manuka honey you're going to pay thirty, forty dollars. Yeah, for for four what or five ounces. What's a pound of grapes cost? Uh, nothing versus that. What's a pound of pound of Pilsner malt cost? Uh, fifty. Uh, forty-eight cents. Forty-eight yeah, cents. So now, if you're listening, you can you can sort of begin to understand why mead is so expensive. So our biggest challenge as a company, and I think as an industry, like all told, is that mead is unknown. And it's really expensive to make it. And so if you're making something expensive, I always felt like from the beginning, we we should spare no expense in our packaging. So we use flip top 750 milliliter bottles for a lot of what we do in our core products. They're made at one place in the world in Germany. They're imported through Montreal. I mean, the supply chain is really incredible. Even though we keep our sourcing local often, sometimes you have to go outside of your local area to get the highest quality ingredients or packaging. And so if anything, superstition is about quality and, and not sacrificing that uh, at any step. And I really liked how you talked about the different varietals of honey, because if you're listening to this, you may not know that honey can be just as diverse as any grape or grain or hop. And if you're a craft beer geek, that's going to make sense to you. If you've never homebrewed, then it may not. But just think about the difference between a white wine and a red wine. And then all of the styles that go into that, that's the same with honey and traditional meat. And then you add to that any legal fruit, herb, or spice, (laughs) or barrel, and you can come up with an unlimited amount of flavor combinations and when we're you know brewing with you and putting a lot of honey in a beer like that's a style of me that we can't make as a winery because we can't have cereal grains but then you can go use any base beer style and add honey to that and boom you've got something in that no one's ever had before you put that in a mead barrel and then you trade it with a brewery and all of a sudden you've got mead barrel age you know beers and beer barrel age meads and and we have just loved coming up with um, the most innovative flavors that, you know, you can imagine. That's amazing. Well, thank you very much for your time. And uh, I, we very much appreciate you coming on. This has been an excellent show. Thanks, thank you. Jeff. Yeah, it's been awesome, brother. I appreciate it. And uh, It's my pleasure, guys. Have a good day, man. All right, take care. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. In 2016, our next guest founded a brand of Mama Juana, the national drink of the Dominican Republic. Candela Mama Juana, meaning on fire in Spanish slang, is a blend of Dominican rum, natural spices, and honey. I think we have a honey theme going on today. Inspired by the invigorating elixir of the Taino shamans, Candela is distributed throughout Florida, California, New York, and the Dominican Republic. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Alejandro Russo. Thank you very much for joining us today here in the Tap Room. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm a huge fan of your beer and your work. So oh, thank you very much. I love being here in person. Thank you. So I remember being on the beach in the Dominican, and guys would sell me, or try to sell me, obviously, like a glass bottle filled with spices and bark. And the thing was... You would buy this bottle. I mean, at that time it was uh, Ron Brugal. Yep. And then you're supposed to add it to the bottle and infuse the rum with these spices. And to me, that was what they called Mama Juana. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So is that Mama Juana? That, yes, that, that's exactly what it is. And I came across that experience just like you. I'm not Dominican. I'm an honorary Dominican, but I wasn't <laughs> born in the DR. Uh, I was actually there just like, uh, you know, any tourist that goes to Punta Cana or La Romana or these beautiful places. And 
it was insane because we were having a great time drinking Mama Juana with, you know, all my friends that I made at the swim up bar at the right. hotel. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I remember um, after, you know, a really, really fun time, uh, which probably if this airs on serious, I, I won't be able to share a lot of the details, but you can imagine. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, I go up to this bartender. His name's Dionis. Really cool Dominican guy, dances bachata like, oh, like Prince Royce. I mean, the guy is smooth, <laughs> as smooth as you can imagine. Okay. Uh, I say, hey, Dionis, you got to give me a bottle of this Mama Juana to bring back home with me. And he goes, all right, uh, wait for me behind the bar at six o'clock. <laughs> say, okay, sure. So my bags are packed. I'm about to head back to Miami. <laughs> and I go to the bar where he worked at right. six o'clock. And I say, hey, you got the Mama Juana? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he grabs his backpack from like under the bar and super shady and opens up his backpack and he gives me this bag full of these sticks and like stuff inside. I said, no, 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 Dionis, you didn't understand. I don't want drugs. <laughs> <laughs> not marijuana. Right, not, right. I don't know what I you got in that bag. Wine. I want the stuff that you gave me at the bar, the shots. It's like, yeah, this is it. Just add rum. Uh, wait a couple months and, you know, add some honey and that's it. Wow. I said, wow. So this is how you make this stuff? Like you can give me a bottle that's ready to drink? And he goes, no, man, this is how we've been drinking it for hundreds of years. Like that's, this is like how Dominicans drink it. Wow. And I said, wow. Okay. And that's when I had my drunk epiphany. <laughs> I said, we need to do something about this. Oh, yes. No, I, I could see where it would come from. I mean... Is there also some truth to that kind of myth that it's also said to be an aphrodisiac? And is that true for candela? Okay. Um, we don't, we can't confirm nor deny <laughs> any rumors <laughs> about Mama Juana. Uh, what I can share though is that um, we're in the business of making people happy and have a good time. And our customers are very loyal. Nice. Nice. So, so there is no truth or denial to that. So everybody needs to find out for themselves. Though. You need to find out for yourself. <laughs> uh, and honestly, you know what? That rumor, uh, it might be the Mama Juana that makes that happen. Maybe it's the great weather in the DR. You know, you're sitting Very by true. a beautiful beach, Very hearing true. great music. <laughs> Who knows what, what, what it is? But, you know, there's definitely some magic in this awesome. bottle. So. What is the origin of Mama Juana? I mean, do you, what is that backstory of all that? Yeah, so that's when, you know, when, when I had my drunk epiphany, I was like, this is great. I need to drink this all the time. How can I get it? But then when I learned about the story, it was when I was blown away. Really? Because this drink has hundreds of years of story behind it. Oh. And it's a very colorful story that we, we could literally have like hundreds of pages written about it because, and I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it for you, but... It started out as a health tonic, like this. Like, like an elixir. Exactly. It's an elixir. Right, right. It's a concoction that the Taino people, the, the shamans would make uh, to cure, honestly, anything, right? Like uh, people would come up to them. They, they, they would, you know, I have fatigue. I don't feel good. My blood pressure, whatever. They would, they would mix all these Mama Juana sticks with the leaves and all the other stuff that goes in it. And they would give you Mama Juana to cure it. Ah. Then they noticed, you know, a couple of side effects uh, <laughs> that people really like. And it became a very popular drink. What's interesting about Mama Juana, which kind of is very similar to, to marijuana these days, which is in the 1950s, uh, there was a dictatorship period in the Dominican Republic. Uh, General Trujillo, he was, you know, the, the, the dictator in the DR during those years. Uh, and he... Just like weed, he said, you need a medical license or, or like a prescription to be able to buy or, or drink Mama Juana. And that's when Mama Juana became like an underground drink and kind of like a symbol of Dominican culture. Uh, and I just think that makes it so, so interesting as a drink. Uh, you know, there aren't a lot of products like that. Uh, so I, I just feel it's a very special part of the history. And now we are here to undust this history book. Yeah, I mean, because I don't think a lot of people, like, unless you've been to, to the Dominican, like, it's, it, it's not very... Most like, likely you've never heard of it. Right. I had never even heard the word Mama Juan until I was at the swim-up bar in the Dominican. Right, I, like, I mean, and you come from a Latin background. You're Chilean, so, like, you know... I come from a Latin background. I have, you know, traveled all over the place. Right. I love booze, but yeah. I, never, <laughs> I never heard of this stuff until I was at that swim-up bar in Punta Cana. And, and that's why I said, 
how could it be that millions of people are drinking this stuff every year? Millions of people. Right. They go there. They have a great time. But nobody's sharing this outside of the DR. It was confined. So I said, wow. you know what? Like, this is a book that needs to be undusted. It's That's like awesome. been hidden behind the shelf for too long. That's awesome. What inspired you to launch the Mama Juana brand? And are you the only Mama Juana brand in the United States? Yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of, there's a big movement. There are a lot of Mama Juana brands that are coming into the market in a ready-to-drink format. Uh, Candela is the leading brand. We're the only premium brand. Uh, you know, we're the gold standard of Mama Juanas. And uh, we we take great pride in that. Uh, you know, we we all of the team here at the brewery, we just had a shot. And I don't know if you noticed the first word that everybody said when they had it. It was smooth, right? And we do hundreds of tastings, uh, and it's always the first word that people say, smooth, smooth, smooth. Wow, this is so smooth. They're expecting more of a bite, and it just goes down, you know, like silk. And the reason why that is is because we put a lot of love and care and resources into making the best quality product available while maintaining, obviously, the authentic elements of how it's made, all the ingredients that go into it, but... We take great pride in, in how we make it because at the end of the day, what this is, it's an all-natural spice drum. It's a spice drum that has no artificial colors, no artificial flavors, no extracts, no, no weird anything. This is just the finest drum that the DR can produce, natural wow. okay. spices, and honey, and that's wow. it. So how did you get the company off the ground? Like, What were the first steps to taking it from an idea to reality? Oh man, you're you're an entrepreneur. You're a businessman yes. yourself. Yes. You know uh, that the road from A to Z is filled with oh. <laughs> so many different letters, right? <laughs> yes. And yes. it's it's a roller coaster. Uh, honestly, I think Candela has gotten to where it is because I was very naive when I started, and I had no clue what I was getting myself into. I was just a tourist that had a killer time in the DR, and man, everybody should drink this. I had no clue what it actually took to bring the product to market and how difficult that would be. And thankfully, I was naive enough to keep going until it got to a point where now we have, you know, countless customers and so many loyal fans uh, around the States. But it was hard. And initially, you know, every single aspect of this uh, was very far away from where it is today. You know, we, we took years to perfect the formula years to get all the licenses, permits to import and, and, and sell booze. You, you know how that is, yeah. you know, the, oh, it's yes. just crazy. Um, and, but we, we always had the mission of making sure that everybody in this country needs to taste this hidden gem. So, you know, when times got tough and we didn't know how to get around this permit or how to get around the financing, how to get around the distribution, how to get around the marketing, how do we do this? Um, we always kept going because there were always like these uh, nuggets of gold uh, that even though like maybe, you know, nine out of 10 of the times were very difficult. There was only one. There was always one day where somebody said like, wow, this is the best drink that I've had in my life. Or somebody that would write to us an email that says, hey, my mom, she's never had any alcoholic drinks, but she had a sip of candela oh, wow. and, and she drinks it. Amazing, uh, and, and we always get stories like that. So I'm like, there's definitely something here um, because there are so many people that don't like to drink booze straight up and they right. really enjoy Candela. Something with a little bit of spice to it. Something that changes it from that just that raw format. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. So I guess, I guess it was also important to produce the product in the Dominican Republic. Oh, yeah. I mean, you being Chilean-American as you are, uh, was there ever any pushback because you're not Dominican but producing their national drink? That's a great question. I, honestly, I thought there would be. I always said, like, I don't want them to think that I'm not authentic or... But it's been the opposite. Like, they're just so proud of their Mama Juana and we're doing it in such a high-quality way that yes. they, they love it, you know? Right. Because when somebody comes into your country and takes something that is a very important part of your culture but elevates it instead of just, you know, uh, commercializing it in a cheap way... That would be very offensive. Right. We're doing the opposite. We're, we're grabbing something that's an intricate part of their culture. It's their pride. And we're elevating to a point where they've never seen it. You know, we're making the best Mama Juana in, in, in the world. So it's like, imagine a country that's like uh, known for their cars and you come in and you make the best car that they've ever seen. They're going to be very proud of that. Of course. Uh, so that's how they see, that's how they see Candela. And we get so many 
so many reviews. Like if you go to the review section on our website, like you'll see people say like, oh my God, I can't believe how this tastes. It brings me back to the DR. It brings me such good memories. And, and that's what it's all about. We have so many people that maybe they're Dominicans that moved here or Dominican Americans or, you know, children of Dominicans or they have friends that are Dominicans. You never know. But then when they come across it, it just gives them good memories. I mean, seeing this package format and having tried it in, in, in everything, I mean, this is a much different representation than obviously the stuff that I had in the DR. This is a much more elevated. So I could see there being a little bit more backing to this yeah. as an overall product than having a bottle filled with sticks and leaves and <laughs> stuff. It's funny. You told me that, yeah. you know, when you were in Punta Gana, yeah. you mixed some Brugal rum with the sticks, right? Right, yeah. So I, I always say, it's a funny saying that we have in the DR, which is the Brugal, they serve it to you on the shelf, the Mama yes. Juana under the shelf, right? Yes. It's always yes. kept underneath. It's like hidden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like the thing that you, you know, is there, but you don't see. Exactly, yeah. right? So it's like... Uh, when, when, when I had this drunk epiphany, I said, I need a Mama Juana that shares the shelf with Don Julio, right. with Patron, with Sacapa, right. with all of these amazing spirits. Like, why not? Why can't there be a Mama Juana that shares exactly. the shelf with why all not? these top shelf liquors? And that's what Candela is. And now, obviously, you know, we're very proud that we're at, at that level. That's amazing, man. That is amazing. You're listening to the Beer Hour, and we're speaking to Alejandro Russo of Candela Mama Juana. How did you finance the distillery in Santo Domingo? Okay, so we co-pack. So thankfully, there was no like big capex that I had to do. Oh, uh, yeah. So that that was the 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 good part. You know, we found these amazing amazing partners that actually produce. I, I would say, you know, the best rum in the Dominican Republic. We're, our rum that goes into this, like <laughs> we always kid around that Candela sold for thirty dollars a total wine or these other stores. We're selling a sixty dollar rum in a thirty dollar bottle. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, we're fine with it because we want everybody to taste it. But right. the quality of the rum that goes into it, you know, we make it, it's, it's as, as good as it gets. We make it from fresh pressed uh, sugarcane juice and not molasses. Uh, right. The there's, a big, there's a big difference huge, there. Huge. Yes. Like, I mean, yeah. for the people like me, like I didn't know anything about rum when I started it. But so the, the easiest way to understand it is like the difference between drinking like a minute made lemonade or like a cold pressed fresh squeezed lemonade, right? From concentrate. Exactly. <laughs> like this is as fresh squeezed and cold pressed as it gets, right? It's like, uh, and also because the, the sugarcane is estate grown. So in the same place where the sugarcane grows in, in near San Pedro de Macorís in the Dominican okay. Republic, the sugarcane is harvested and it's distilled on the same place. Oh, wow. It doesn't even have to travel to another country. Right. Or like, You're not putting it on a ship to come yeah. somewhere else. And then, you know, degradation of the product as it travels. I mean, it's exactly. actually done right on the there. spot. That's amazing. So this is like as farm to bottle as possible. Wow. Uh, and that's why when, when you drink this, like it literally goes down your throat like silk because the so, so that's the rum. The, the rum is distilled from fresh breath sugarcane. Uh, it's estate grown. And it's actually aged in, in, bur- in ex-bourbon casks, which gives it a really nice body and flavor. And it should also lend a little, you know, flavor profiles to that as yeah. well, if I'm not Exactly. And, and in the future, we'll experiment with different types of casks. We've got really fun stuff coming. But so that's the base. And then on top of that, we mix all natural spices, which is the Mama Juana. And the way that it's made, it's, it's literally, there are no, there's no weird, like, extracts or things like that. This is like... Like making tea, right? Like we just infuse it in the rum, and and let it let it mix. So and blend. you get this sugar cane, press the juice. Obviously, use the juice. Turn the juice into the rum, and then from there, are you going to the barrel to finish? Yes. After so, after the distillation, yeah. And then, so after barrel aging, you're then infusing it with spices. Exactly. Ah, okay. So what we do is the rum okay. itself uh, goes through an amazing process because the rum that goes into Gandela also goes into some of the you know finest rums that's sold from other brands. They also produce. I I, oh, yeah. I can't say which, that's but fine. but you know some of the finest uh, other rum brands also share the same rum and casks that we use. And then uh, in parallel, the the Mama Juana extracts are made from the same sugarcane alcohol. Oh. And that's infused separately, and then it's all blended together in a beautiful way, which is ends up being what's bottled into Candela. So I know, like, you're big on the ingredients being like all natural. Why is that important to you? That keeping these ingredients all natural. Why is that so important? For many reasons. Number one, because this product has to be as authentically Dominican as possible. You know, right. we're very yeah. proud that 
All of our ingredients are locally sourced. They're all from the Dominican Republic. This is made only by Dominican hands and following the authentic recipe of the Dominican Republic. So it will always have to be like that. We never want to, uh, we never want to make this mass produced so that it loses its authenticity. And then number two, just like any modern consumer, we care about the stuff that goes into the products that we consume, whether it's the shampoo you wear, right. the yogurt you're eating, like anything that you, 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 you eat or consume, people, they're you know, flipping the product and reading the label more than ever, right? I think it's super important for it to be as natural and clean as possible. Because, exactly. I mean, it's going inside of you. It goes inside of you. Yes. Like, if you don't care uh, what goes inside of you, then maybe Kandal is not your product, right? right, right. There are other cheaper brands that, that you can buy. Uh, but if you care about the quality and the sourcing of the ingredients, about the process, about the ethical component of it, Candela is probably the best drum that you're going to be able to buy because we really take such good pride and care in making sure that everything that goes into the bottle is as good as it can be. I think modern consumers, uh, not not young consumers, modern consumers of any age care more and more about uh, the process and, and ingredients that go into the products they consume. So I do have a question. The name. <laughs> So I mean, this has been uh, this has been kind of a. I kind of explained it to him. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so what is candela? All right. The literal translation first. Yeah. Yes. Go ahead. First of all, you pronounce candela beautifully. It's, Thank you. Yeah. That's because I yell at him in Spanish all the time. That's <laughs> how we communicate. You know, I've also lived in Miami ninety percent of my life. Right. So <laughs> I would hope I would absorb. Yeah. Something. But well, yeah. So that was beautifully pronounced, candela. So, okay, the literal translation of candela can be fire or flame or camp, right? But the way we Latinos use it is <laughs> like we say that something's fire, something's lit. Someone is. Someone is. It's kind of like, it's funny, it's a great word because like when somebody's maybe sexy, you can say candela. candela. When somebody's maybe a troublemaker and giving the, you like, oh, she's candela. You candela. Know? There, there's always like... It, multiple meanings for this. Exactly. It's multiple <laughs> meanings, but it's all around that spiciness, ah, that passion okay. that makes us Latinos who we are, you right. know? Of course. We'll love you one day and throw a chancleta <laughs> at you the next. <laughs> I, it yes, it I, can I, all be in the same day, actually. Oh, actually, yes. All it, the could, same, yes. Right. yes. <laughs> it can all be within uh, like hours. A span of, yes. of a few yes. hours. I'll yes. hug you at 10. I'll throw the chancleta at 12, right? Yes, and exactly. then I'll hug you again at 1. Yes, and then yeah. we make up. We'll, we'll take a shot of candela and it'll all be fine. Yes. I agree with that. But yeah, so the name... That's why I came up with the name because I said this drink is like the quintessential Latin drink. Okay. Right? It's made by the Taino people, which are like the natives that yes. inhabit all of the Caribbean. Not only the, the DR, honestly, it's Puerto, Puerto Rico. Rico. Yep. Even South Florida, North Colombia, like all the Caribbean basin, it was the Taino. The Taino people. Indians, oh. yeah. Oh. This is their okay. drink. So when you think about anything that's Latin, like uh and by Latin I don't mean Mexican, right? right Mexico. Right, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. different. They come from Aztec, Maya. You know, right. they have a different heritage. But Caribbean Latin people, like, this is their drink. Okay. Uh, and I just want people to know that whether you're Dominican, uh, Puerto Rican, Colombian, Venezuelan, doesn't matter, but you're a Latino from Miami. Like, this is a drink that represents you. And the word that I came up with, I said, Candela, like, that's what we are, you know? When, when you have a, a, a friend... That gives you that fire, that gives you that passion, the Candela. Amazing. I love it. I actually, I love the name. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Are there plans to expand distribution to all 50 states? I mean, do you envision yourself in Omaha, Nebraska in a couple oh, yeah. of years with Candela? I mean, where do you see yourself? I mean, do you see over the whole United States? Absolutely. I mean, this has to be a global brand. Right. And starting with being uh, in every state of the United States, most of our customers... They're not here in Florida. You know, they are in Nebraska. They're in Texas. They're in Wisconsin. Really? They're in Minnesota. Wow. They're in Michigan. Uh, like, these are all places where people love Candela because it lets them savor something that's, unfortunately, it's far away from them while they're having, you know, they're in the cold. They like to savor this. Um, oh, this would definitely warm you up. Oh, yeah. This, this will warm you up. Make, makes a mean hot toddy, by the way. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> very recommended. Okay. Um, but yeah, the, the plan is to expand to be nationwide. Wow. Uh, we have very ambitious plans this year um, because this is a brand and it's a product that furthering the initial mission, you know, everybody needs to, to try this. Okay. Um, and, I, I, and it doesn't matter if you're young, if you're old, if you're Latin, or if you're as 
white as it gets. It doesn't matter. You're going to enjoy this and you're going to have a great time. And that's what Candela is all about. Last question for you. How can our listeners find Candela Mama Water? Okay, great question. So if you're in Florida, it's very easy. Any Total Wine, Big Daddy's Liquors, Crown, uh, Jensen's, you can find it. If you're in New York, you can go to Costco in Oceanside. You can get it there. If you're in California, we're also in the Total Wines and Erewhon's in California. But that's a very limited distribution footprint. If you're in Wisconsin, (laughs) if you're in Texas and you want Candela, you can order it online. Okay. Um, You you just go to our website uh, at drinkcandela.com. You'll be able to get it. You'll be able to get our new shot glasses there and all the new products that we're going to start launching. You have to have the shot glasses, by the way. So. Oh yeah. yeah, which is the traditional way of of Taking when you when you take a shot, you say pa arriba, pa abajo, pa el centro, pa dentro, which means up, down, in the middle, and then exactly. take it down. <laughs> exactly. So that's you know that's like the the candela toast because we said okay, candela is like the typical Latin you know saying yeah. that really represents us. I said, you know, like how can we represent? toasting this like how do latinos toast and if you go to colombia if you go to the dr if you go to puerto rico like people will always do that and it's great and yeah like that's how you drink candela it's always a social experience it's always with the people that you're having fun with you know our product is meant to be shared it's meant to be when you're having fun we're not your dad's spiced rum unless your dad is you have you know what i mean <laughs> uh but you we're we're, we're not like an uh an old school spice drum we're, we're not about the library and leather and oak yeah you're not captain morgan no no this is very different this is for the modern consumer that enjoys a very high quality high uh highly you know thought out process highly thoughtful and mindful uh product where it has the best ingredients it tastes delicious and goes down smooth and it's about having fun with the people that you love you know us you know, you're, you're really young, uh, Jonathan. And, Thank you. Uh, you, Thank you. Uh, I mean, everybody here is very young. <laughs> oh, you too, Rocco. You're uh, very young. No, but yeah. you're not like a 70-year-old <laughs> right, still, right? right? right like, right. you're young. And you understand, like, our generation, we, we live for experiences. Yes. We don't yeah. care about having, you know, obviously, like, we like to have material things, but we really care about experiences. We care about traveling. We care about connecting with people. And that's what Candela is for. You know, it's, it's about a product that is meant to be shared and it's meant to be enjoyed in a setting where you're having fun with the people that you care about. Uh, so, yeah. Amazing. Arriba, pa abajo, pa centro, pa Thank Salud. you very much, Alejandro. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's Thank you so much pleasure. for hanging me. It's been such a pleasure. And yeah, we're in your neighborhood, so we can't wait to have you over at our offices. Absolutely. That thank you very great. much, and thank you for the bottles. We appreciate it very much. My pleasure. You, you have a steady stream of Candela anytime you need it. <laughs> Gracias. <laughs> That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Jeff Herbert and Alejandro Russo, our co-host, Maria Cabre, our producer, Rocco Riggio, and our editor, James Maresca. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Howard P. Maresca, Jr. Thank you for listening. You can catch us each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132 or anytime on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, people, the thirst is real.